Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction. We were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. This is part two in our five-part series on Dopesick with New York Times writer and best-selling author Beth Macy. In part one of this series, we focused on what made Appalachia so vulnerable to the opioid crisis. In today's episode, we'll focus on Purdue Pharma's OxyContin marketing efforts and the impact it had on the region. Beginning in 1996, Purdue Pharma significantly increased its sales force, going from 300 to over 700 sales representatives. Purdue also handpicked the physicians who were most susceptible to their marketing, using data it bought from IMS Health to determine which doctors in which towns prescribed the most competing painkillers. By 2000, Purdue sales representatives were calling on 94,000 carefully selected physicians every four weeks, leaving behind lunches for their staffs and oxycodone swag as a constant reminder to push their product. In the end, prescriptions for oxycodone increased nearly tenfold. As we begin today, we continue our conversation with Beth Macy, who shares the impact of oxycodone in her home state of Virginia. Crime had just skyrocketed there. And all of a sudden, the jails were full. People were committing crimes like burning down abandoned factories. And, you know, there was murder in little towns that had never had murders before. I mean, not every town had murder, but there was crime at a level um, never before seen in these communities, which is also happened to be where the coal mines were shutting down and the factories were closing. And um, that was due to people who were addicted to Oxycontin and were stealing things um, in order not to be dope sick. I spoke with Dr. Art Van Zee about Purdue Pharma's marketing practices. You were exposed to the deceptive marketing practices that uh, Purdue Pharma engaged in marketing uh, OxyContin. Tell us a little bit about those. Well, I was, um, you know, again, I was completely on a learning curve about all this stuff. But, um, you know, the more I, I started looking into this, I was just uh, increasingly uh, astonished. Uh, they they had a, Purdue had a website. It was Partners Against Pain. They had different sections, you know. Uh, it was kind of like education for physicians for uh, providers for the lay public you know and so on and you know if you if you read their things it was um, it was obvious they were overstating the you know overstating the benefits of of the drugs or opioids in general for chronic non-cancer pain and they were you know kind of trivializing the 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 risk of it and um you know, the more I read, the more I was astonished about their use of of different articles. The now famous Porter and Jick 
letter to the New England Journal, uh, which was quoted multiple times in produced publications and their media uh, presentations. Then you get these articles, and uh, and there was, you know, it was just obvious. I mean, you could have had a uh, a slow to average second year medical student would say, you know, these these studies don't do anything to support what the the risk of uh, addiction is for chronic, you know, non-cancer pain. Um, they weren't designed for that. They didn't show that. But these these were studies that were being, you know, uh, quoted to physicians through Purdue's websites through through speakers that they had, uh, you know, that they had, had had hired or thought leaders to to promote uh, a more liberal use of opioids and oxycontin, and, and that's what Purdue Pharma did with oxycontin. They had uh, very good data about which physicians were, uh, you know, high prescribing physicians, high prescribing for opioids. Uh, uh, narcotics in general, and their their uh, focus was on those. They they took that data and they divided it up into deciles or or tenths, uh, you know, of, uh, of the spectrum of prescribing, and then they concentrated their efforts on uh, trying to influence uh, the prescribing of the top tiers of, of physicians. And I I knew I did. Uh, eventually have the data for our region, but uh, I would guess it's kind of the same for um, for for uh, Maine. But, uh, you know, we have a lot of people that, uh, whether it's, it's uh, minors, a lot of people that have done hard, difficult, and dangerous work that, that uh, have many injuries, work-related injuries, and has a lot of chronic pain. And so there was a lot of you know, higher than normal uh, uh, narcotic opioid prescribing in in the region in general. There's there's good there's good data on that. So it was anywhere from you know if you're talking about short acting oxycodone or hydrocodone, which is the Percocet or Lortab from that era. Um, it was you know in the range of 300 to 600 percent higher prescribing in our region than national average. So our region was a high-prescribing opioid region. Attorney Emmett Yeary from Abington, Virginia, talked to me about filing the first case against Purdue Pharma. A friend of mine had invited me to uh, go to a, uh, a talk that this Dr. Van Zee, I not met the man at that point, was giving at the uh, local uh, community college. And so I attended, and uh, when this fellow was telling me about, or was telling the audience about the uh, his experience with oxycodone, uh, and then he was uh, also telling how the drug company had actually recruited him, I think many other doctors, and believing that this was the the best thing that ever happened for pain management, and then he had learned of. Uh, over the months that how his patients were getting addicted to it and, and spoken to Purdue Pharma uh, his, some about his results and they were just ignoring it and then also some of their, the ways that they were recruiting doctors uh, 
to uh, promote their product, and so. It, and in the meantime, people were going to jail for uh, drug abuse and uh, buying and distributing drugs. So after I saw what his, uh, I learned from his talk, it seemed to me just the wrong people were being put in jail. It should have been the uh, drug, what I call the corporate drug lords. I'd gotten a call from uh, Newsweek magazine. I guess they had learned about the suit. And uh, one of the things they quoted me on, and I still believe it today, that the, I said that the, these corporate drug lords had done more harm and devastation to the people of Appalachia than the uh, Columbia drug lords had ever thought about doing. Primarily Purdue Pharma had been focusing on the uh, the rural area up and down the Appalachian chain. I think they had done some type of demographic studies and they found out where the doctors were prescribing most of the pain medicine. It was people that did manual labor. And... Uh, in the rural areas of Appalachia, from Alabama to Maine, people that worked in the lumber industry, the coal mining, farming, where they they wouldn't have some injuries, and uh, so that's who they focused on to, uh, to try to tell the doctors that they needed to make their patients pain free, and this was the best thing that they could. That came along since ice cream, and I come along since ice cream, I guess, and that they needed to do this. Otherwise, uh, they were not practicing medicine properly. They could be sued for malpractice if they didn't do this. And so they uh, suckered these doctors in by a number of methods. So, and you spent uh, a great deal of time investigating those uh, those methods, and and uh, you had the benefit of uh, sales rep call reports and notes. Um, and you also had the Wood reports. Tell us a little bit about those sources and what they uh, what that shared with you. Well, even the, some of the doctors had now come along uh, as Doctor Van Z had finally realized that, and he was innocently duped into this, as many of the doctors were at first. And uh, they were telling stories about how the drug reps would. Uh, <laughs> First of all, telling them that they needed to uh, make sure their patients were free of pain and, and this drug was not addictive. And, uh, then they would uh, just show them films about, or they would, one, they would give them free trips to Florida, uh, to edu so-called educational trip. But it was just a, way to seduce them and then the doctors I guess they would go down there and be like a Tupperware salesman and they would go back and recruit other doctors I guess to um, carry on that same line so one of the messages was that they would give free trips uh, a lot of the drug companies even now they'll give free dinners to doctors and this sort of thing so the practices that they produce pharma Probably was not new. It's just more sophisticated than the other drug companies were doing, and uh, so they were, in some cases, intimidating the doctors, uh, suggesting they could be guilty of malpractice. They could be sued for malpractice if they didn't prescribe uh, this, these painkillers. I spoke with Sister Beth Davies. 
who has served as an activist and advocate on behalf of the impoverished, addicted, and exploited in the heart of Appalachia for more than 40 years. Sister Beth talked about the arrival of Oxycodone in their community. It came out, it was released in 96, and by 97, we already had have found a, a senior at our local high school snorting Oxycontin in the library. Hmm. That fact. And um, what happened was a Purdue farmer came into all of the doctors in Lee County, who were very few, and they, they first of all, they looked at areas that were, um, there was a lot of prescriptions being written, and they were being written because there really was so few medical people that people would, they throw at them a, a, a prescription uh, rather than doing a full write-up on people's medication. Oh. So there wasn't enough doctors to go along, oh, go around, no, so they didn't no have doctors. the time, so they would throw prescriptions at them that's, so that's that they would, would be happen. happy and go away. Exactly, because that was the only way. And if a doctor didn't prescribe, uh, he wasn't a good doctor because he didn't prescribe something. Because, yeah. And the only reason that they did prescribe, they had so many patients to keep up with that they'd you know, do a little uh, fast survey of the patient and then realize, well, this is what you need or that's what you need. And, and so prescriptions were really, you know, people were over-prescribed with uh, medications only because the doctors were so few and uh, some pain relief or other relief needed, you know, for, for other ailments. But anyway, as that began to um, increase, um, Purdue Farmer, of course, had done their, their homework to find areas where there was legitimate pain, and we had plenty of that because of the coal mines and logging, and also uh, a high Medicaid rate, because if we had a high Medicaid rate, uh, they knew that that would take care of paying for the prescriptions. And let me tell you, in 1997, when it started to get out there, frankly, we had a treatment center, uh, an outpatient center, and it was mostly alcoholism, because that was really the, the drug of choice at that time, alcohol. And uh, we, had, we had a lot of people dealing with uh, alcoholism. So we had a treatment, an outpatient center. It was just, a, say, it was just in an old building, and, and uh, it was open to anybody who could walk in, because there wasn't any treatment for it. And um, all of a sudden, some people were coming in, because it was a walk-in facility. Anybody could come in. And we began to hear the word oxys and OCs. I had never heard of that before. I didn't know what people were talking about. The other counselor working with me, she said, what's this OC, this oxys? So I called the local pharmacist, and uh, his name was Greg Stewart. And Greg said, mark my words, this is going to be the most disastrous drug that has ever come into this county. I spoke with pharmacist Greg Stewart and asked him what made him realize the dangers of OxyContin when all those around him failed to do so. I think that because the way they were detailing us, they, we knew that also detailing the physician. When a new drug comes out, they, um, the drug manufacturers, and to a much lesser degree today, or at least <laughs> our pharmacy, uh, they... Um, they come in and they tell you about the new drug. They give you the indications that the FDA allows the patient, to, allows the uh, physician to, on the basis to prescribe it. Uh, they tell you what that drug uh, may be, 
what is used for its possible side effects um, and a number of different issues. That is supposed to follow the FDA uh, summary that uh, that's dispensed both to, given both to the pharmacist and to the physician. And while we believe we have a um, a very good pharmacy, uh, it's unusual to see a patient drive 60 miles to come to to visit your pharmacy to get a prescription filled. So you know there are many little things that tip a pharmacist off that, hey, this really this is a real question. So is it true that also, as early as 1997, when you filled prescriptions of OxyContin, you begged customers to lock their medicine cabinets? We saw that over a period of time because one of the things that happened was we start hearing uh, about people, their homes being broken into, uh, even patients who had cancer. It wasn't uncommon to see the, their homes being broken into. So we we told them to try to keep this as confidential as possible because we knew that, that just being in possession of that drug, because it was such a drug of, of high abuse, they could be a, a target for that. And we saw break-ins increase. But the the reps seemed to feel like that, you know, this is one of the... Uh, one of the better things in the newer developments as far as treatment of pain, pain management, and uh, we had a number of discussions, and we're always put, we always push back against them uh, in their liberal use, uh, almost a nonchalant atti- attitude about it. This is no big deal. You need to be doing this. Uh, you need to be taking care of these patients, and we certainly wanted to take care of them, but we know that you know drugs have side effects, and some are deadly, and uh, that certainly has been the case with, with OxyContin. Did they ever use the term pseudo-addiction with you? <clears throat> Actually, that was used quite often, and I think that was partially a, a front. Um, it was almost like, well, the things you've seen in the past, these patients really are not addicted. Um, uh, they may have a physical dependency, but they don't have a full-blown addiction because once you increase the dose of the medication and that patient's pain is relieved, then they don't continue to, to exhibit these drug-seeking behaviors, which is true. But you also have a certain percentage of the patients, and making that distinction is very difficult. I, I certainly have respect for the physician who's trying to deal with those issues. But certain people are going to continue to use, um, and their dose will escalate regardless of whether their pain should be relieved or not. And you see in those patients truly are addicted, uh, these other behaviors that come out. So there is, a, uh, I guess, a message in the background, uh, just keep raising that dose to, uh, until the patient's pain is relieved. A patient could come out paying $3 for prescription for uh, 80 milligram OxyContin, and uh, I think it, and then have the potential, given the price at that time, to have in possession for themselves a drug that was over in street value over seven thousand dollars. So there's a lot of incentive. Uh, we saw grandmothers, uh, I mean, patients on pain medications for even for cancer. We've had reports that some of those are even selling their uh, their medication uh, for the for the financial gain. This dramatic increase that we saw uh, with the advent of OxyContin and its detailing, uh, this increase in, in addiction, crime, all those things that go along go together, 
uh, led us to even take a stronger stance against the, the Purdue organization. I talked to Dr. Steve Huff about his experience taking over a practice from high opioid prescribing physicians in the area. Around, I don't know, maybe 2012, two of those providers up and left, and lo and behold, they had uh, all of a sudden their patients became my patients and the one other doctor who was still there, sort of the founding doctor of the practice, and uh, they had been on quite a bit of, uh, of narcotic-type medication. Uh, so they were coming back for their monthly refills, and looking through their charts, I didn't, I wasn't coming across the information that, that was typical for somebody getting chronic narcotics. Basically, you have to you have to go back and get old records uh, from previous providers. You have to get scans and x-rays and other documentation to support their claims of pain or, or anxiety or whatever you're treating. And so I couldn't find much of that old information. I, you should also be doing things like drug screens to see, number one, are they using other substances that would disqualify them from having opiates or benzodiazepines or other narcotics. And number two, do they have the drug that you're prescribing in their system? So I I wasn't seeing drug screens. Another tool that you can use is um, pill counts. And, and, you know, if they, if you prescribe a, a hundred pills and, Two days later, you call them in to count how many are left, and there are none. Obviously, they've done something with them rather than taking them the way you prescribed them. And they hadn't uh, had any of those. These were folks who had been accustomed to coming in every month and just sort of getting their rubber-stamped prescriptions. Uh, And then all of a sudden, here I am questioning all of it and forcing them to jump through the hoops and ultimately rejecting a lot of those. Uh, so they were angry at me, and I was hating <laughs> my job at that point. You know, I would go into work every day. Instead of seeing this sort of well-cultivated panel of patients that I had accumulated over the years, I was dealing with a bunch of young, angry people who were uh, who were on prescription narcotics or maybe perhaps their financial well-being depended on these prescriptions and so they were kind of desperate either way i guess it all for me it all came to a head one one span uh, maybe a few months after the the two uh, other providers left and i was i was just kind of frazzled and maybe not as diplomatic as I had been originally. And uh, in the span of about 10 days, I got two sort of veiled threats against my life. It's a couple guys, they, you know, I refused them their opioid prescriptions and they went out to the, to the front desk ostensibly to schedule their follow-up appointment. And uh, 
muttered something like, uh, if I see that guy on the street, I'm going to kill him. Hmm. And that happened twice in, in 10 days or so. And just the whole frustration of everything. Once, once I got back to me, I, I just decided I had enough for the time. And I got in my car and drove to, to my sister's house in Mississippi and spent uh, a few days there. Actually, it was, I was uh, looking at, uh, I was thinking about buying a gun just for protection. We conclude today's episode with a clip from a CBS News report that aired last summer on Purdue Pharma's misleading sales practices, including teaching representatives about pseudo-addiction. Problems continue to mount tonight for Purdue Pharma. The maker of OxyContin laid off its entire sales team this week. 24 states are suing the company, accusing it of fueling the opioid crisis. A decade ago, Purdue Pharma admitted to falsely claiming OxyContin was less addictive than other opioids. But a former salesperson says its questionable practices did not end there. Here's Tony DeCopel with the CBS News investigation. I think they misrepresented to the public. I think they misrepresented to their salespeople. And, yeah, I think it was just a big charade. Carol Pernera says she joined that charade in 2008 as an Oxycontin salesperson for Purdue Pharma. So bottom line, sell as much as you can. Sell as much as you can. To what end? To making money. To making money. Just a year earlier, Purdue had admitted it falsely promoted Oxycontin as less addictive by, among other means, claiming the drug's slow-release formula did not cause a buzz or euphoria. The company said the misstatements ended in 2001. But amid a widening addiction epidemic, Panera claims the company taught her to tell doctors that some patients might only appear to be addicted. In training, she was given a term for this, pseudo-addiction. Did this concept of pseudo-addiction come with studies backing it up? We had no studies. We actually, we, we did not have any studies. That's the thing that was kind of disturbing, was that we didn't have studies to present to the doctors. You know how that sounds? I know. I, I was naive. A 2015 study published in Current Addiction Reports found no empirical evidence to support pseudo-addiction as a diagnosis. In a statement to CBS News, Purdue said it is confident that Oxycontin sales have been consistent with the information contained in the FDA-approved label. But the word pseudo-addiction doesn't appear on OxyContin's label, and a spokesperson for the FDA said the labeling is not intended as a discussion of pseudo-addiction. I reject any notion that there's science behind pseudo-addiction. Oklahoma Attorney General Mike Hunter is one of two dozen AGs suing Purdue and other opioid manufacturers. Many of the lawsuits mention pseudo-addiction. Do you think this is an epidemic that begins with Purdue Pharma and OxyContin? Yes. That's the start of it all. Yes. Carol Pranera, who quit in 2013, says she hopes the drug maker is held accountable. Do you regret the five years you spent with Purdue Pharma? I'm going to sum it up and, and say this. I think that was one of the, if not the worst career decisions of my life. And between 2006 and 2010, as this pseudo-addiction concept was being used, OxyContin sales more than tripled to an all-time high. And Jeff, one year later, the CDC officially declared opioid painkiller overdoses epidemic. Pseudo-addiction. Pretty amazing to hear Boggles of mind. Tony, thank you. Thank you for joining us for part two in our five-part series on Dopesick with New York Times writer and best-selling author Beth Macy. Tune in next time for part three of our five-part series where 
you'll hear stories from some of the families that were profiled in Beth Macy's best-selling book, Dope Sick. My name's Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.